Testing, testing, one, two, three. Okay. Good morning. Hey, it's risky. That's fun. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about evidence for resurrection, as was talked about today. Um, this year has been a heavy, heavy on the evidential part of uh, stuff. So we have lots of evidence for the resurrection. Um, that's what this month is talking about. Our context for the year, though, as we recall, is being faithful and grounded. So, just to tie up a loose end, I guess. Last week, I talked. I sort of like brushed on um, different competing theories about the resurrection and stuff, and we talked about a couple in our cell group, anyway. Um, so, just to hit those really quick, not really worth our time necessarily to go over those in full detail. But just to tie up a loose end, there's not really any reason why we shouldn't be faithful and grounded. These theories aren't really a threat, as we touched on before. Um, we should pursue those, and I encourage you guys to pursue those things on, a, on your own time or whatever, just looking into those different alternative hypotheses for the evidence for the resurrection that we talked about, and just being convinced and honestly impressed at the human imagination in terms of what people can come up with in alternative theories to what we see in the historical record. But just a, as a practical summary, the theories that we are looking at are like hallucination, um, like mass hallucination, which doesn't happen, um, uh, spiritual or metaphorical resurrection, the theory that Jesus didn't actually die, but he came close to death and then got you know, revived over time or whatever. Uh, it's called the swoon theory, that the body was stolen or swapped out and that alternative or all or key sources in the historical record are um, false or altered or whatever. But as we talked about over the last few weeks, you can probably already, as we come up with those different theories, um, come up with your own reasons why those things just don't make a lot of sense. Everything we've talked about, scripture's reliability, we talked, out, talked about throughout the year. We talked about all the evidence for Christ's death and the empty tomb and witnesses and the life action of all the apostles that were witnesses of the resurrection. Just all of those things, um, just the basic facts, have an incredible amount of weight to them that you can apply to any one of these theories and you'll be able to easily be convinced that a bodily resurrection is actually the best explanation for what we see there. One of the most, one of the quotes that I ran across that I just thought was really interesting and that I just want to share, not necessarily that it's perfectly related to what we're talking about today or anything like that, but the German theologian David Strauss said in the 1800s, listen, a person in that kind of pathetic condition, talking about Jesus, if he were to survive the crucifixion, a person in that kind of pathetic condition would never have inspired his disciples to go out and proclaim that he's the Lord of life who had triumphed over the grave. I just think that's really um, persuasive for me, I suppose. Just looking at all these theories and just that concept of what would, what would produce that kind of massive response. And I don't think that we can see from any of the naturalistic explanations 
anything that's compelling in that. Just the quantity of the response. Like you can come up with excuses and little theories about why this happened or why this happened, but what produced this verifiable response that we see across the historical record and continuing to this day? So as I encourage you to go check those things out on your own, it's good to know your enemy, but it's better to understand yourself. So let's start where we left off, which is the resurrection. Check out Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to start there. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through the Spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. We can know details all day long. You know, we can know all these details, all these evidential details. But to know the love of Christ is to understand the significance of his work, which culminates in his death and resurrection, which we can be sure of. So let's try to understand some of the significance of this in the last couple weeks that we have this month. God set up the resurrection in a way that really enables us, thankfully, to be grounded as well as faithful to our resulting unity in Christ. So we know that we're grounded in that. We can fully be convinced and believe in the resurrection of Christ. But what does our faithfulness to that look like? What was intended for us through the resurrection? I would submit to you that many, many things are intended for us through the resurrection. Many, many things that we can take. But let's look at a few of those today. It's where the evidence meets the spiritual to have assurance, right? The resurrection was in many ways a way to assure us of God's plan and his follow-through and all those things. Take, for example, that the stone was rolled away in terms of our assurance. It gave us hope. It gave the apostles and us continuing to this day hope and also proof. They could see that Jesus was gone, right? In Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 1, early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. We see in several places in Scripture that Jesus didn't even need the stone to be moved, right? You think about it, like you think, okay, the stone moved out of the way, the tomb was empty, or whatever. Jesus didn't even need that stone to be moved away. He didn't need a passageway. He wasn't locked in to that rock tomb. Um, he was able to appear, for example, inside a locked house and appear to the apostles. He's able to uh, come alongside some people in the road and then vanish at will. And if you look at this passage, it 
you kind of get the impression that Jesus was already gone when the stone was rolled away, right? This passage gives the impression that the women showed up and the angels rolled away the thing. Jesus may not even have been in there when they rolled away the stone. The point is that I think we can see that more for us than for Christ was that stone rolled away. That's interesting. There's sort of a precedent set, too, earlier in Scripture. Uh, let's take a look at John chapter 12, verse 27. It says, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? This is Jesus praying, obviously. But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice from heaven spoke, saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoke to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit and not mine. So God thinks, does things specifically for us to see, not necessarily for all the mechanics of that stuff, but because he wants us to know a little something. He wants to provide us with reason. He wants us to be fully convinced of what we're doing, that we're following the true God that's not ashamed to have to hide behind, you know, some vague auspice of faith or whatever it is, but a God that operates in real time and real space in our world. So the apostles were in a unique position to actually know the truth. This is something that not a lot of people get the opportunity uh, in terms of all the different faiths and religions of the world. You might say that no one else gets this opportunity, in fact. And when I say they're in the unique position to actually know the truth, what I really mean in that is that they are in the unique position to know the truth from a lie. You know, They have the opportunity to personally verify yes or no. And lots of other faiths and religions and things like that, You, like I've said before, somebody goes into a, a cave, for example, or digs up some tablets in the desert and then loses the evidence for those things, and that people from then on are taking that on faith. But that's not what we see in the historical narrative here. We see a bunch of people that are able and have the desire to go and verify that for themselves, whether they know something and not just believe it. The apostles knew whether it was a truth or a lie. So the cool thing about that is, is that through their documents and things like that, through their reporting of that, God allows us to be in largely the same position. That comes with responsibility, though, does it not? They certainly had a responsibility, and Jesus called them to a responsibility based on those things that they had seen. So we need to consider that as well, and we will. So God declared his supremacy and victory over this world by proving himself in this way to be the author of life, as Peter calls him. I like it because death and resurrection is sort of a microcosm of creation. It's like a, you know, a mini version of creation. You have something that is uh, taken to a new level. We see miracles of like, healing and stuff throughout scripture, but this is a new level of totality, if you will. Christ allowed his life to be destroyed to be decomposing, to be falling apart, to be something that is not sustainable anymore. But then he was able to rebuild it at his will, at his father's command. 
I don't know about you guys, but that's compelling to me. It's one thing to have something that is somewhat functioning, but um, and then you restore it. But when you have something that's been dead for several days, you know, it's like decomposing. There's nothing left of it. Like you can't bring that back to life. The you can't. You know, what's our legal brain dead thing right now? Like 10 or 15 minutes or something like that, where it stops functioning. Like several days, the whole deal is just falling apart. You may as well be creating out of nothing, ex nihilo, you know, from just a scattered, uh, disorganized, like, machine, you know? It's like if you have a factory that was once capable of producing, you know, complex computers or whatever, all in, all in you know, one building or whatever, and then you drop a bomb on it and then it explodes, like, all the stuff is still there. I mean, you can't really do anything with it. Like, you might as well build a new factory, and they would do that rather than try to repair the other one. It's easier to just build something new. But that's not what... God decided to do in Jesus. He destroyed that life, allowed it to be destroyed, and then chose to rebuild it. I think that is also interesting because he could have created ex nihilo to prove that he is the author of life in that way. He could have created out of nothing and brought something into existence, and that would have been very compelling, you know? But that's not what God chose to do. Instead, he chose to rectify a wrong, you know, to to, uh, what's that dashboard song? Vindicate? <laughs> the, he chose to vindicate Christ to conquer death in that process. And that is something that is far more relevant to man than creating out of nothing. That would be impressive, but death is something that we struggle with day in and day out, that it's, it consumes our lives, you know, as a fallen human race. So Jesus takes a stand and offers a solution to the biggest issue as multitasking, you know, to both show us what we needed to see and to present a problem that has consumed us since we first introduced ourselves to sin and therefore death. So when he does take a stand, there are witnesses to that, right? And those witnesses are mostly believers, interestingly enough. They are not unbelievers. We have a small number of believing, of unbelieving apostles, as I'm calling them here, um, like the tomb guards. You know, they were witnesses to those things and even reported it to the Pharisees of what they saw as they were freaking out and um, sort of had to cope with that, figure out what to do. There was other you know, random people that I'm sure were witnesses to miracles and stuff like that, but there were, um, like, the high priest slave who's got his ear cut off and things like that. But for the most part, we have believers that are witnesses, right? It's like you have to ask the question, why didn't God just show this grand thing to everybody and have everybody convinced and all the, wit all the evidence on the table and everything? But God wants our genuine repentance and love not to be you know, boxed into a corner. Like, he wants a real relationship with that, where we have these things where we can be confident, yet needs a commitment to him, you know? So it's not a forced allegiance or a bought allegiance like we see in the kingdoms of man in the, in the different governments and things we've seen across the ages, but something that is a real relational commitment from believers that calls us to go and speak with other people, to have relationship with other people, just as Christ did with his apostles 
we also see that as the apostles have this choice, they're presented with these evidences and things, they know that it's, it's not a brand new Christ they see. You know, It's not like, oh, this is a whole new other world. They know that it's the resurrected Christ because all components of him are still there. They're just in his glorified form. For example, in Mark 16, Jesus is rebuking his disciples for having very little faith still. You know, it's the same old Jesus. It's not like resurrected, like, you know, buddy Jesus or whatever with the, like, you know, the wink and the point and stuff. Uh, Luke 24, some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote what all the prophets wrote in these scriptures. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as we see in Hebrews 13. That's pre-resurrection, even while he's dead, and post-resurrection. It's not a different Jesus that was resurrected that they had to identify and recognize and worship. It's the same guy. It's the same guy who we see today, the same person as the historical Jesus that we can follow. So as far as the apostles' perspective, it was all the pieces were on the table. They had a choice to make, to be faithful or to not be faithful. Some of them, Scripture says, some of Jesus' disciples, I'm not 100% clear whether that means the 12, the apostles, or his followers in general, but some of them that were exposed to this evidence and uh, all sorts of the witnesses and all that chose to not be faithful to that. You know, And certainly in the moment, they all chose not to be faithful to the person of Christ that they knew. But they came back, they repented, they stood before God and pledged their allegiance. They were faithful in the end. We are not in such a different situation, you know? We are presented with all of that evidence. We do have a choice to be faithful or not and what that looks like. Do we, you know, be faithful in the way that, you know, we continue going about the motions and just put a little something-something in our mind about whether we are faithful or not? You know, do we check the Christian religion box on the, on the census or whatever? Or do we go out and have the attitude and willingness to do something about that on a personal and effective basis? We are the disciples of Jesus, just the same. We have access to that same information, to those same conclusions. In John chapter 17, verse 13, says, now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your world and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. 
and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. We see that we are indeed disciples of Jesus, that we're called to that specifically, even in that prayer from Christ himself. So, as disciples of Christ, we see, we see something. Um, I want to talk about 1 Corinthians 15 and the concept of first fruits, right? Christ was the first of the resurrected. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, it says, If our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised first in the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. This concept at the end there, Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. That, in Scripture, all the way from Old Testament through the New Testament, Paul talking all sorts about it, is the idea of first fruits, right? It's the early sampling. It's the first ripe produce of a larger harvest that's yet to come. It's the choice part of the harvest. It's not just, you know, some of the first that you randomly pick, but it's, you know, from a certain area, it's the, it's the best part of the harvest. And it's used in the Old Testament to express our thankfulness to God, to give back to him, you know. And the temple sacrifices is some of the places they use the first fruits. So if the first fruits are good, the idea is that the rest of the harvest will be good too. They're a reflection of the rest. First fruits are the guarantee of the quality of the harvest that is yet to come for the rest of the harvest. So Christ is both the forerunner of this harvest and the head of an entirely new humanity in that, as we're made new creations. Paul uses the phrases in Christ and with Christ and through Christ to describe our new status and character as the people that are the rest of the harvest. Christ is the first raised, and as followers, we are the next up. This is this first fruits idea that is hammered in throughout the New Testament as Paul explains this, this theology, the resurrection of Christ and what that means to us. It creates an inseparable union of us with Jesus, just as you can't separate the first part of the harvest from the rest of it. You know, In Leviticus chapter 23, even, verse 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I am giving you, and you harvest its first crops, bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will lift it up before the Lord so it may be accepted on your behalf. All the way back to the Old Testament, we see this spot where, where God is commanding the people Israel to do this first fruits. There is even a feast called the Feast of First Fruits. It's part of the Passover week. Interestingly enough, 
that is, let's see, what is it? Um, the Jewish month of Nisan. The Passover sacrifice begins on the 14th. And then the Feast of First Fruits begins on the 16th. That happened, the Feast of First Fruits is scheduled on the day of Christ's resurrection. It's really interesting. It's not only does the metaphor make sense, but God planned it in a way that was just unbelievably clear. He, you know, it's not like that happened as a coincidence. The way he set it up thousands of years earlier is that the day that's integrated with the Passover and the sacrifice and, and all those things that we base the new covenant on and remember those things by. The Feast of first fruits lands right on the day when Christ is resurrected. He's that tied to it. It's that much of an assurance and a hope for us. So, that being said, we are all following Christ in that pattern. And that calls us to something. But we can go out in security knowing that we are a part of that same harvest. We can still um, live our lives and do all those things that scare us, you know? But we know inequivocably, we know for sure that we are part of his same harvest, that we will join Christ in that same way, that the author of life who brought his son back from the dead is going to do the same for us. So that sort of begs the question, are we going to sit on the couch knowing the harvest is coming? You know, like we got machines out there, I got my workers out there, the harvest is coming, I'm going to sit here and watch, I don't know, whatever it is that you watch. <laughs> but you have a choice of doing that, or you can grab a tool, one of those Grim Reaper-looking things, you know, go out there and hack at some bushes. Maybe you're not good at hacking at bushes, but regardless, are you going to sit there and work on that harvest, or are you going to sit on the TV? Being faithful and grounded, it's not just an internal faith, right? It's an outworking, too. James chapter 2 we find that faith without works, without good works, even, is dead. But our faithfulness is not based internally, but in how we respond to God. In Matthew chapter 25, go there. Verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and a, one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they'd used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
you've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said much the same thing. Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let us celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I'd lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. And here's your money back. The master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate. Why didn't you deposit the money into the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But to those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we just have a concept here of investment, you know? Like, God has done a lot of things for us so that we are set up for success, that we can take those bags of money and invest those and get something good out of it and be called a good and faithful servant, be asked to celebrate with him. Wow. In fact, that phrase, let's celebrate together, what that translates, even in a little like subnote of the NLT, it translates, enter into the joy of your Lord. You know, when we make a good investment, that's what God wants to do with us. He wants to celebrate with us. He wants to enjoy that success with us. When a lost sheep is recovered, you know, there's a big celebration. You can have 99 sheep that are good and nice sheep, but when, you, when one gets lost, that's when a real celebration happens, when you go out and make a return on your investment, when you go after something, after someone, and you recover what God has sent you to do. So, Jesus in the resurrection gave us a big fatty bag of gold. Just a big fatty bag. And we got to do something with that. He gave us full reason to believe and to follow and to transform and to be bold. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We hold this mantle of the apostles as current believers. And ABF is increasing its evangelistic approach. You know, we've grown, we've gone through a lot of like years, a lot of cycles, a lot of education and things, and, you know, the apostles got a few years with Christ. We've had a lot of time here to mature, and that's the conclusion that we're coming to, is that we are mature, that we are realizing that we have a calling to go out and do right by the investment that God has made with us at ABF. We should do right by it. So, we've seen all that we need to in the resurrection and not even mentioning the entire rest of Scripture was just full of goodies. But just even in the resurrection, 
God has shown us what we need to be fully convinced. He's called us specifically as witnesses, people that can trace those events back and be sure of it. He's promised that we are a secure harvest through this like interrelated concept of first fruits, that we don't have anything to worry about, that we have our own vindication. And he's commissioned us to a task, making disciples. God has given us more than we need to be faithful and grounded. So let's take risks, make investments, and be willing to experience those trials, you know, those times of being vulnerable, of putting yourself out there, figuring out exactly what it is that God wants us to do, to put aside our own, I don't know, insecurities, inhibitions, like, yeah, those things that would prevent us from doing what we're commissioned to do. And both of those paths, you know, whether it be a successful harvest, whether we go out there with a combine and just plow the crap out of that field, or if we go out there and do the very best we can with the little scythe that we have, with the little Grim Reaper tool, and hack at the bushes and, you know, like stomp on it and go old school on it. Like either one of those things, whether we have a bountiful success or whether we have a real hard time in doing our best trying to figure out what the people around us need, what the people that we love need in order to understand who Christ is. Both of those paths will bring us into entering into the joy of the Lord with him. So let's go and discuss some stuff. Let's discuss what pieces has God set in place in front of you? You know, what are the things that God has set in front of you for you to understand and act on? Are you being stubborn and not fully acting on those pieces? You know, are you going out and listening to your calling, going out and taking those risks and looking and working as hard as you can to make a harvest based on the investment and the equipment that God has equipped you with, or are you not? Um, maybe pick a relationship that you have. Pick a relationship. What kinds of actions do you take or do you not take in that relationship? You know, think about what you do or don't do in that relationship. What's the main message that you're communicating in that? Our main message from, from Scripture and the resurrection is our salvation and all of those things. But there are many, many implied messages that we get from that. We get security and love and all the fruit of the Spirit that we're given in that process. All the maturity that comes from understanding Christ. But what are the implied messages that you're giving uh, in those actions that you're taking in your relationship? Really ask, you know, what do I do? What defines this relationship? And then say, what does this mean to that person? And lastly, our discussion on being faithful is drawing to a close this year. So, who in your world could use a new life? You know, who do you look at and feel, for lack of a better way to put it, sorry for? You know, who is it in your life that that sort of tugs at your heart and you want something better for them? You know, how have you reached out to them 
not just on a casual level, like want to play some, you know, GoldenEye 64 or, you know, watch a, watch a new movie with them and, you know, sit side by side in silence for two hours. But what have you done to reach out to them with authority? And I don't mean standing on a pulpit and, like, preaching the straight-up word, but speaking authoritatively about who God is in real space and real time, what that is like in your life, living that consistently, you know, and what you want for them. Will you be able to say to God in the end that you did your part? Will God call you a good and faithful servant based on those, you know, relationships that you see around you, those crops that are around you that you either were sitting on the couch and watching somebody else try to harvest or you went out there and hacked away with yourself? Okay, let's go discuss.